This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. President Trump called the old agreements, especially in the case of NAFTA, the worst deals in history. And now he's called the new agreements just wonderful deals. I mean, just great. The big surprise is how little change. So will the average person notice very much with the new NAFTA as opposed to the old NAFTA, which was allegedly the worst trade deal in, in American history? Well, I don't think so. One view is that we have entered into a new Cold War with China. And the leading edge of that Cold War is economics. This is different than the first Cold War when I was a kid, because there the leading edge was military. I think, you know, a lot of waves and big waves ahead. Some economic dislocations. Yeah, a lot of economic dislocation. I mean, this is going to hurt real people in real, you know, doing real jobs in, in this country as well as in China. Dr. Gary Huffbauer is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, a position he has held since 1992. During his career, Dr. Huffbauer served at the U.S. Department of Treasury as both the Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Trade and Investment Policy and as the Director of the International Tax Staff. In those roles, he served two different presidents, one a Republican and one a Democrat. Dr. Huffbauer writes extensively on international trade, investment, and tax issues. I recently had a chance to sit down with Dr. Huffbauer to discuss the international economy, particularly the causes and consequences of current U.S. trade policy. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. From training warfighters to modernizing platforms to defeating UAVs with lines of code, Raytheon is working across networks, markets, and continents to protect every side of cyber. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Gary, thanks for joining us today. It's great to have you on the show, and it is great to see you again. I'm going to date 
both of us here a little bit, <laughs> but you were a professor in the economics department at Georgetown when I was a graduate student there. Oh, my God. And we won't talk about how well I did in your course. <laughs> <laughs> Very quickly, though, since since many of my listeners probably don't know of the Peterson Institute, I'm wondering if you can just tell us what it is, what it does. Well, the full title is Peterson Institute for International Economics. And it's not a big institute by comparison with Brookings or Heritage or American Enterprise Institute, but it is focused on international economics. Uh, about 50 fellows, some of them non-resident like myself, most of them resident. And uh, so we cover the, uh, you know, the international waterfront in terms of macro policy. That would be exchange rates, fiscal balances, uh, current account balances, very detailed on trade policy, especially since the, uh, well, we've been there a long time, but since the Trump administration came in and revolutionized trade policy, that's been a, a big uh, source of attention. Then for the larger countries, we have specialists on those countries. So that would be China. We have a very heavy emphasis on China, Brazil, obviously the European Union. Uh, I do a fair amount of work on Canada Mexico. So uh, that's uh, that's kind of the remit. And this, of the is, this, this is a nonpartisan institute? Yes, yes, it's a nonpartisan institute. It's funded by very wealthy people who are generous to us. They don't try to dictate the program. We get some corporate support and some foundation support. Great. Gary, I want to start by telling our listeners why I wanted to have you on yes. a show, a podcast on national security. Right. And that's because, in my view, trade is a national security and a foreign policy issue. The national security piece for me is that trade has important and real economic effects. And I'm a big believer that the most important determinant of a nation's national security is the health of its economy in the long run. And the foreign policy piece is that trade policy affects our relations with other nations with whom we have an interest in conducting all sorts of business. And so before we get started, I just want to see if that makes sense to you, that kind of link between trade policy and national security. Oh, absolutely. We're on exactly the same page. Either you learned it from me or I learned it from you. I think I learned it from you. (laughs) Exactly. That would be my view. Those would be my views. Okay. Okay. With that behind us, let me start by asking two broad questions and with some, I think, some interesting specific sub-questions. The first broad question, Gary, is When two nations trade with each other, what are the economic effects? What are the effects on the overall economy? What are the effects on consumers, on companies, and on workers? Okay, let me try to tick those off. Uh, First of all, when two countries trade with one another, each will tend to specialize in what it does best. Uh, That's David Ricardo, the famous uh, British economist in the 19th century, and uh, it proves out. Now, that doesn't mean that one country will only produce one thing and the other country will only produce another thing, uh, but they will tend to uh, specialize. So let me give a fairly simple example. The U.S. obviously has a lot of good farmland, and we also have a lot of very good farm technology. So uh, soybeans happens to be one of our Uh, strong products in terms of comparative advantage. And we trade soybeans with a lot of countries, but other countries are exporters of other 
products. And just to take, uh, I'll just take one example and then stop there. I mean, the French happen to be very good at producing luxury goods, whether it be cheeses or perfumes or wines. And we're not bad at those things. We're just not as strong in the in the high end of the luxury market as they are. And yeah. so we import. Yeah. So what's the effect then on the overall economy and then on specific sectors and in particular on workers? Yeah. Because this is where the politics comes from. Yeah, sure. On the overall economy, the evidence is overwhelming that when countries trade with one another and, and they specialize in what they do best and actually learn a lot from each other, that strengthens the economy. That makes the economy bigger and stronger than it would otherwise be. And it's a cumulative process over time, but it is very, very powerful and maybe not noticed as much as it should be. But we reckon that about a tenth of the U.S. gross domestic product, our output, is due to this uh, efficiency effects of trading with other nations. That's a big share. And for other countries which are smaller, it's a much larger share of their economy due to trade. Now, in terms of consumers... Uh, consumers of immediate items, what they will find when you have uh, freer trade is you'll get better quality at lower price as a consumer. Uh, so that's the uh, that's the effect on consumers. On producers, firms, an effect which is underappreciated here and elsewhere is that producers actually learn a lot by competing with better firms abroad. Uh, or better firms anyplace, but they learn from those other firms and they up their game and then that improves the overall economy. So that is a big effect. But along the way, there will be some producers who go out of business and that will get a tremendous amount of political attention. Are there estimates of the impact that NAFTA has had on real incomes in the United States? Yes, we did some estimates and other people have done some estimates. So there'll be Obviously, different estimators will come up with different things. I mean, the U.S., we have to realize, as as you know, it's it's a giant economy. Our estimate is that the gains to the U.S. economy work out to about, you know, $400 to $500 per household. Now, you know, that's, that's not a trivial sum, but average household income in the U.S. today is is something like $50,000. So that puts it in perspective. It's a gain. Uh, we're not saying it's the end of the world, but it's uh, it's a substantial gain. And if we add that to all the other gains from trade, uh, you know, the whole, the whole package is, is, is quite large. Are there similar estimates about the effect of China joining the WTO? Yes. There are famous authors, uh, Otter, Dorn, and Hansen, ADH they're referred to, who did some estimates, which have gotten a lot of publicity on the unemployment effect in the United States since China joined the WTO and became a very much larger exporter to the U.S. Now, we think, or I think, that those estimates have been overhyped, but let me give you the estimates. They estimate that in the communities affected by imports from China, uh, jobs over a period of about a decade are about two to three million less than they would have been without the impact from China. So that sounds like a big number. When you reduce that to an annual effect, 
and then compare it to the normal amount of uh, job turnover in our country, you know, you put it into perspective and it's, it's much smaller. And I now have to digress and note that some scholars are even very skeptical about the two to three million number, but let's stick with that for the moment. The number of workers who are involuntarily laid off every year is about, in the United States economy, is about 4 million every year. See, over 10 years, that's 40 million compared to the 2 to 3 million I mm-hmm. mentioned as the China effect. And if you take the total job separations every year, we have a very dynamic uh, labor force. That is, people move places, they move jobs and so forth. It's a much, much larger number. It's about 20 million people change their jobs annually. But most of those are voluntary. The person leaves the job. So that's the employment effect, and that's what's gotten all the attention with respect to China. So the overall, the overall decline in manufacturing jobs. Yes, you know it's it's probably down by a third. Yes, right, right. right. What has caused that? Has trade oh. played a role in that, or is that primarily automation? It's played a role, and it's played an outsized role in the politics. But in terms of the actual impact, the basic job killer in this country, and I'm going to put a face on it. You can look at Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. I mean, it's technology. It's technology which, uh, and and our institute has done the estimates, in particular uh, Robert Lawrence, who's a non-resident fellow up at Harvard. Our estimates are that about seven-eighths or at least three-quarters of the job losses in manufacturing are due to, you know, Technology. We're very much more efficient at producing anything today than we were uh, two decades ago. I heard somewhere that it used to take 10 man hours to produce one ton of steel, and now it takes yeah. two man hours. You, you've got it. That, that's about it. Those, those figures are just about right. And that's an, maybe an extreme example, but that's a very strong example of this effect. So let me ask you about this paradox that's out there, which is that real wages for a very long period of time have not kept up yes. with productivity growth, right? Uh, maybe since the early 1970s. And some people blame that on trade. Right. What's what's your view on that okay. issue? Okay. It's not keeping up with productivity growth because what's happening with this technology that we have in this in this world, and especially in this country, is that the premium to being able to cope with the new technology, which is very information-driven, very computer-driven uh, in all sorts of ways, a very uh, elaborate uh, machinery these days to produce anything. It takes a lot of skill. The premium paid to the people with the skill is rising. And the uh, people without the skill, they're not getting much benefit. And so you're getting a steeper gradient of the money wage by skill, if you think of skill on the on a horizontal axis and wages on a vertical axis, you know, that line is getting steeper and steeper because of the technology effect. The bottom line, though, is that this is not a trade-created no, phenomenon. No. Oh, yes. That right. is very much the right. bottom line. Right. The bottom line is it's not, <laughs> not dominated by trade. Yeah. Uh, okay, the second, the second broad question, Gary, is trade balances. Yes. Surpluses deficits right. between individual countries, what determines them and do they matter? 
Yes. Okay. The first big statement is that I don't think they matter, or at least they don't matter nearly as much as the current political debate makes them seem to matter. Now, what determines them? Well, almost all economists, but all economists don't agree on anything, but but the great majority of economists agree that there are three or four main drivers of trade balances. One is the real exchange rate between your currency and your trading partner's currency. And by real, I mean adjusted for inflation. Mm -hmm. The U.S. dollar is very strong right now. Secondly, your savings rate, uh, and that is savings by households, by business, and by government. Uh, How does that compare with the amount of investment you want to do and your budget deficit? Well, in this country, our savings rate is substantially lower than the amount of investment that firms want to do or households want to put into new homes or the government wants to spend by way of deficits. That's a second big determinant. A third big determinant is how strong your economy is relative to your trading partner's economies. When your economy is strong, as the U.S. economy is today, you're buying more of everything, including imports. If your trading partner's economies aren't quite so strong, well, they're tending to sell to the strong market, and that's that happens to be so the So it's US. really you're saying it's macroeconomic effects, Absolutely. not not. And 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 we've looked at this in great detail. It's not tariff policy. I know that if you listen to political debates, you'll think that tariffs are everything, and that they determine trade balances. Well, they are important in some respects in a micro way, but we have looked very carefully at this, and you cannot associate the height of tariff barriers with the size of trade deficits or trade surpluses. Okay, great. So with all that as background, (laughs) which is great, now let's shift to the current trade issues. And maybe the place to start is with a political question but one that has economic roots. And the question is, what do you believe is driving current trade policy? And how do you think we got from a place where free trade was accepted as a good thing by almost everyone except those on the far left? And now it seems to be the political mainstream that's questioning free trade. Well, How did we get here? That is a great question. I ask myself that daily because I spent my whole career (laughs) studying and, and I would say, advocating as well free trade and globalization and so forth. And obviously it's been been reversed, so I've had to think, why why have we come to this? And I, I have come to kind of a broad conclusion and then some specifics. The broad conclusion is that we have a, a global wave of what I would call populism. And it's not just the United States, though the U.S. is a is deep into the populist trend, but it's Brazil, Bolsonaro. It's Mexico, uh, AMLO, Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador. He's popular. But it's also Europe. There are, there are four or five very strong would-be leaders in Europe who are populist. And one group, which had a good vote turnout, recently in Germany, is the alternative for Germany, AFD. And it's a right-wing populist. 
So we have this global, you know, kind of populism. So what is the common force for populism? Well, I think there are uh, two, two big forces, maybe three big forces, but one is immigration. This really excites people, and I would say hyper-excites them. But, you know, the feeling that the immigrants are going to come and uh, destroy our lifestyle, destroy our culture. Take our jobs. Take our jobs. It's very strong. And you won't, you, I mean, it may be strong in this country. Maybe one of the strongest places is uh, East Germany, uh, which I used to visit. And um, very strong for the alternative for Germany, the right-wing uh, radical party. And they're very concerned about uh, such immigrants as have come to East Germany. Well, so that's one thing. And that affects both Europe and the United States, the immigration politics. The second thing is what we were just talking about, this wage gradient, or, you know, you could say inequality if you wish. And it has gotten steeper in every industrial country, in every advanced country, Canada, Australia, even Sweden, even Denmark, which are, you know, we think of them as egalitarian countries, but the pre-tax, pre-transfer income is getting more in favor of the more skilled people. And that's very technology-driven, and it's hard to see where there's an end to that because we're just on the cusp of artificial intelligence and robots. And so... It's getting steeper, but what's, I think, driving the politics is that today we know, or everybody knows who watches TV, that it's that other people are doing better than they are. And, of course, people focus on the super rich, the operas of this world, the Warren Buffetts, you know, the Larry Ellisons. I mean, and their lifestyle, you know, if you go back to the age of Rockefeller, well, people know who Rockefeller was, but they didn't know the details of his lifestyle, the way we know the details of people who are rich today. So I would say the envy factor, uh, thanks to social media, general media, and so forth, is much greater today than it had been, you know, 50 years ago. And that's true, I think, in all advanced countries. So I think those are the factors that are driving the populism in the hopes of finding some... And immigration's a target and trade's a target. And yeah, immigration and trade are the two things that you can, because it's very hard. I think people find it very hard to wrap their minds around doing something about technology. A couple of centuries ago, there was a group called the Luddites in Britain, which went around destroying textile machinery. Uh, well, we don't do that anymore, or we don't do that overtly. And so you have to find some cause for... You know, if you're a politician, you have to have something to blame because you're going to satisfy the people who are discontent. And, uh, boy, that's what you go for. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we were right back with more of our discussion with Gary. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the world changing, of networks connecting, enemies evolving. You can't slow it down. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. But you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, 
delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So as our world changes, we can make it a safer place. Okay, so a specific issue. So we have two new trade deals. Yes. So we've renegotiated the U.S.-South Korea trade agreement from 2007, and we've renegotiated the trade agreement formerly known as NAFTA. Yes. Um, from 1994, have been renegotiated by the Trump administration. In both of those cases, Gary, what changed and what are the economic effects of those changes? What will those effects be? Okay. (laughs) You have a lot of good questions. The first thing that changed and the big thing that people will remember, because after all, we all have our jobs and we're concentrating on our personal lives and so forth, our personal and professional lives. The big thing that changed is that President Trump, who is uh, just a a master at public relations and and getting public attention, is that he called the old agreements, especially in the case of NAFTA, the worst deals in history. And he said that many times in different ways. And now he's called the new agreements just wonderful deals. I mean, just great. So the big thing that changed was the rhetoric Mm. from the nation's leader, about the agreements. Okay. Now, people like me and other people in the trenches, nerds in the trenches, we look at the details. The surprising thing about both deals, the big surprise is how little changed in terms of the actual elements of the deal. In the case of South Korea, it was, you could say, minuscule. And I will give just two of the, there are not very many things that changed, but two of the things that changed were this. South Korea now allows each American company, auto manufacturer, that would be the Detroit Three, to send, I believe the number is 50,000 cars to South Korea, which meet U.S. emissions and safety standards, even though those are different than Korean safety standards. And Previous to this new deal, the respective numbers per company was 25,000, according to my recollection. The fact of the matter is that no American company ships more than about 7,000 cars and is not about to ship 50,000. So it wasn't constrained before. It was not constrained before and it's not going to sell more. That was one thing that changed. Another thing that changed is that the U.S. has a very high tariff on trucks, including pickup trucks. Now, where I live now in New Mexico, nearly everybody drives a pickup truck, and I drive one too because of the roads and so forth, the weather. We have a tariff on those of 25%. Nobody talks about this very much. It's a very high tariff. It has a very long history. It goes back to the 1960s. There's a retaliatory tariff for some things the Europeans did. And the U.S. had agreed in the original Korean agreement to lower that with respect to trucks produced by Korea, which they don't produce very many of anyway. Uh, We would reduce that in about, I think the figure was 15 years. Now we're not going to reduce it for 25 years, you know, basically for the lifetime of current politicians. Well, nothing, what, what really changed? I mean... We're going to keep that restriction on for a longer period of time. 
that, that's pretty. There are some other very small changes that were made. Now let's turn to NAFTA. In NAFTA, uh, and we've written a, a long piece about this, but there's a combination of negatives and positives from my standpoint, which is a free trade standpoint. The negatives were mainly that the U.S. now has something of kind of a managed trade approach to autos. Whereas previously it was freer. It wasn't completely free, but it was freer. And now there are constraints, limits on the number of autos that can be shipped from Mexico or Canada to the U.S. The limits are actually higher than current shipments, but there are limits there. And there are restraints on how much of those autos has to be produced in North America. It used to be 62.5%, now it's 75%. So I regard that as a step backwards, but that was one of the big objectives. A step backwards because at the end of the day, the consumers end up paying the price? They will, will. When when these constraints, when they bite, taking your point, uh, they will, you know, it'll raise the price of cars. Very simply. Now, people may not notice it. It may be three or four or five years. We're at the top of the auto cycle now. Uh, it may be a while before we those constraints bite. Uh, it depends very much on what... President Trump does with imports from other countries, Europe and Japan, and that and, and that remains to be determined. So that was one one big feature which was negative. There were some positive features. There's now a chapter in the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, USMCA, which deals with digital commerce. And nobody thought about digital commerce back when it negotiated us. You know, back in 1992, 93—that's a long time ago—and uh, it wasn't covered. But now it is, and there are there are limits on what governments can do to uh, either put taxes on digital commerce or require firms to put their servers uh, locally, as opposed to serving from, let's say, a common base in Silicon Valley or wherever. Uh, so that was a that was a constructive chapter. Now, when you take the overall balance, these changes, and there are many others, are pretty small, pretty modest. So will the average person notice very much with the new NAFTA as opposed to the old NAFTA, which was uh, allegedly the worst trade deal in, in American history? Well, I don't think so. I don't think there's that no. So let's get to the big enchilada then, which is China, right? <laughs> yes. And I, really a couple of questions about China. One is, as you know, the administration has imposed tariffs on $250 billion right. of Chinese imports to the U.S. And um, it's also toughened up China's ability to invest in the United States right. by uh, by how we tighten CFIUS enforcement. What's the impact of all of, of those tariffs and those those tighter investment rules? That's question one. And then do you think China ends up the same way as South Korea and NAFTA with a deal that, you know, is face-saving for both sides? Or do you think China's fundamentally different at the end of the day than South Korea and Canada and Mexico? Well, to use the old cliche, that's the $64 question. And if you answer that right and you have faith in your answer, you can probably make a good deal of money in the stock market in the U.S. or the Chinese stock market. Because whichever way it goes... So now people are really listening, Gary, for the answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to make a lot of difference, yeah. Okay, one view which I adhere to, uh, but, uh, you know, not with a high level of conviction, is that we have 
entered into a new Cold War with China. And the leading edge of that Cold War is economics. And it's exactly what you said. It's the tariffs on a very substantial portion, now about half of our imports from China, and they've reciprocated with their tariffs on our exports, and the threat to do tariffs on the remaining half of imports from China, and we don't know what China will reciprocate because they already have tariffs on most of our exports to them, but they could do other things to uh, inconvenience or make life difficult for U.S. firms. And there's the investment restraints, which actually go both ways. China has been pretty restrictive on investment into China, although they're slightly moving in a liberalizing direction. And we have been pretty open to investment from China in the United States. And now we're moving in a pretty sharp tightening direction, especially where it's technology. And this is different than the first Cold War when I was a kid. Because there the leading edge was military. Mm -hmm. And now the following edge is military. But I'm expecting if we, if if the Cold War metaphor is right, we're going to build up our Navy. Uh, And they'll probably build up their Navy because uh, that's the logical place where we will have differences of views about how uh, the South China Sea is managed and so on. And that, that story... Uh, that Cold War scenario story, given that China is a really big player in the international economy now, it's the biggest exporting country, biggest importing country, which Russia never was or the Soviet Union never was, you know, that has major economic consequences for all U.S. multinational firms who are doing business in China now because then you're, if it's a Cold War, then you're doing business in the enemy country you shouldn't be doing business there. You shouldn't be looking to the China market and so forth. And uh, that scenario, I think, means, uh, you know, a lot of waves, uh, big waves ahead. Big, Some economic dislocations. Yeah, a lot of de- economic dislocation. I mean, this is going to hurt real people in real, you know, doing real jobs in, in this country as well as in China. Now, the second view, the more optimistic view, is that they're going to, do a deal. And that would be, you could say, the happy scenario yeah. or the, the non, you know, it's not that we're going to suddenly have an embrace of China, but it would be the same level of adversarial position that we have today going forward. Now, neither, obviously not the Cold War scenario, but that scenario, it's not the same as with, as with NAFTA going to USMCA or the new Korea agreement. So, Gary, you've been very terrific with your time here. I just want to ask you one more question. So to be fair to the president, the Chinese do um, undertake a number of unfair trade practices, and the president has chosen a particular approach um, to deal with those tariffs and investment restrictions. How would you recommend the U.S. to deal with those? Well, I, you know, I really applauded when the Justice Department indicted a handful of Chinese for espionage against Micron, that high-tech semiconductor firm. They said the Chinese had, you know, had basically stolen Micron's technology. I think Micron's based in Boise, Idaho. In any event, I I wish he had, uh, instead of doing what he's doing now, which is these very broad tariffs across a wide range of products with more threatened, 
and uh, a pilot program on investment, which, uh, as far as I can see, has no limits. I mean, it's a very it could limit any almost any investment if you can say there's a little bit of technology there. I wish he had targeted on actual Chinese companies which are engaged in offensive practices. And these could be state-owned companies, and there are many of them, or they could be totally private companies which seem to be uh, benefiting from uh, appropriated or forced technology transfers. And I think you could have done it much more on a targeted company-by-company basis the way we have traditionally dealt with economic sanctions, where we often Mm -hmm. target individual companies. We target a lot of them in Russia these days and a lot of actual individuals in Russia, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the broader approach, which pretty much targets the whole economy. Well, Gary, thank you for being with us. And I think if I had to put my vote on the table here, it would it would be with with yours that the most likely outcome is a some sort of a cold war <laughs> than a, a solution to this problem. But um, I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> thank you very thanks much. Thanks a lot. Hey, right. thanks. That was Gary Huffbauer. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. <laughs> This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.